0: Let's pray and ask the Lord to give insight into His Word. Lord, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. It is a gift to us. It is the truth for us. It tells us the great reality that there is a God, that He has not been silent, and that He cares for human beings. That He delights to save people. And He draws them to look towards Him and to see his great salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you give us eyes to see, would you give us ears to hear, so that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, even this day, to come to know you for the first time, or Lord, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of these very truths. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. Now I'm going to, begin reading in verse 17, but realize there's a whole other section of 14 that's gone before us. I'm gonna talk about that once I've read this portion. This is God's word. After his return from the defeat of Kediloit and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor or creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, or made a covenant with the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now we left last time... In verse 18 of chapter 13, Abram at the oaks of Mamre, where he built an altar just like the one he had at Bethel. And we now come to this next chapter, and quite frankly, until you get to verse 18, there's no mention of God. What we have going on in these previous verses is four kings who are mashers and smashers, and five kings who are rebels who rebel against the mashers and smashers only to find out that rebels don't fare too well with mashers and smashers. They generally get mashed and smashed, which is exactly what happens. And the interesting thing about this is, like I said, God is nowhere mentioned in the first part of this section. There are other places in the Bible that this is preparing us for, like the whole book of Esther, where the interesting thing is God is everywhere present and nowhere mentioned. We're going to talk about that a little more in just a moment, but I want you to think about what's happening here, what's going on in this passage. International crisis, right? We have people from all over the world at war. Sound familiar? You getting the picture of of how this might be going on in our world? International crisis creates economic strains, creates all sorts of situations that make us upset. We're not sure what's going on. And then we come down the passage and we find with all this mashing and smashing and rebelling and crisis and international um, intrigue going on, Abram sitting still at the oaks of Mamre. Sitting there. Look at what it says. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now the thing I want you to think about is, is, that Abram is living by the oaks and not really caught up in all the intrigue that's going on around them. I mean, there's a real sense in which, if you think about it, these kings are coming from the east and all over the, what we would call the Fertile Crescent. Here are these, these kings down in the valley, the valley kings, the five valley kings that are, that are basically rebelling. And here's Abram and, the, and these Amorite men that, that he is living close to, sitting up on the mountains in the land of promise, kind of overlooking all this that's going on. And there's a real sense of what I want you to begin to think about is what's happening in the life of Abram that enables him to do this? What's going on here? And how can we start to maybe get a little bit of a sense of how we understand that those same things that are happening in Abram's mind might be of benefit to us? Here's one of the things I think that we need to think about. There is always a sense of struggle in our world because we live in a world that understands things like this. There are those who have and there are those who have not. There are those who dominate and there are those who are oppressed. There are those who are rebelling and trying to throw off the yoke. And there are those who are trying to clamp the yoke down tighter. That's how the world works. We all know that. So the question is how do we Not be that way. See, most people would look at that and say, but that's not the way it ought to be. And yet, when we get pushed hard enough, we succumb to living that way. Even the people of God succumb to living that way. And we need to start to see in this passage what God is doing and what He is showing about Himself that gives us an ability to be set free from being caught up in that type of living. That type of living which is always going after stuff instead of stopping to be profoundly awed by a God who is always there. So what I think really is happening in this passage is this. We come to the Bible so often as Christians to find stuff that we need. I need peace. How do I get peace? I need to be cared for. How do I get cared for? I need to find out a remedy for my sin. What's the remedy for... You see, we tend to come with those type of thinkings. And it's not that that's all wrong. But if all you're coming is for the stuff and not the giver, you've missed the point. What this passage is trying to show us, I truly believe, is that what we're supposed to see is God Himself not the stuff He gives us. It's not that He doesn't give us stuff and provide for our needs and care for us. But what He really is trying to show us and what we're seeing He's showing Abram is, Abram, you need to see me. We need to see God. If we would truly be free, if we would truly live the way we were meant to live, we have to begin to see God for who He is and not just be looking for the things He can bring to us. Now, what I want us then to look at first is the Lord's providence. As I've already said, as we come to look at this passage, we realize even though it looks like in the first part of this section that God's nowhere present, the reality is He is there. And we have to begin to get into our minds that when we look out at our world, that when we pick up the newspaper, I think sometimes we read the newspaper as atheists. We read our Bibles as Christians, but we read the newspaper as atheists. All this stuff's going on. Wall Street's crashing. I don't know what President Bush is thinking. I don't know which one of these candidates really has answers. I'm not sure about this, and I'm not sure about that, and I don't know about this, and I don't know about that and we tend to read the paper and watch the news, whether we're watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox or ABC or whatever, we have our eyes focused on them as if somehow God is not the king of the universe. As if somehow His providence stops at the church doors. And what I want you to begin to see that's being taught in this Here is the providence of God is going on throughout this whole intrigue of international crisis. I mean, you see the world is going about its business, right? The kings who have a lot lot of power are saying, oh, these upstarts are at it again. Smash and mash. We see that going on in our world today, don't we? We see it all the time. Little Georgia... Big Russia, smash and mash. Well, they're trying to get away from us. They're rebelling. It's there's no different. We're looking at the same type of, of world that we're being seeing here. The question is, is God in charge of that world? Is God at work in that world? Is God doing things in that world? That as we step back and look, we say, I believe in God's providence. Therefore, I'm not going to be stressed out because the world is operating the way it always has. Now, what I want you to think about is this. The other way we tend to think about God's providence is as impersonal fate. Whatever's going to be is going to be, right? Whoever's going to get elected is going to get elected. I'm just going to have to learn to deal with it. We might get a president I can live with, we might get a president I can't live with, although I guess you'll find a way to live with him, whoever gets elected whichever way you're in it. We always seem to find that way, don't we? But the point is is that we tend to look, as Christians, we tend to look at God's providence often the same way the world looks at impersonal fate, as if somehow God's going to do what he's going to do. I just got to learn to live with it. But is that what we're seeing in this passage or throughout the Bible? It's not. See, we see in God's providence that God knew that Lot was going to go down and live among the people of Sodom. God knew that those kings were going to rebel. God knew that Lot had made a bad decision to go down there and hang out with those rebellious kings and kingdoms. And who had He placed up there on the mountains to come and help Lot? Lot. What I want you to see is is that this is a personal God who loves Abram and says, those who are dear to you are dear to me. Lot doesn't forget about, I mean, Abram doesn't forget about Lot. He doesn't take the attitude which says, Lot made his choice. Kesarah, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's just the way it is. No, he has deep compassion for Lot. He goes out after him. Not only that, all these rebellious kings benefit from it. Why? Because Abram is a man who believes that God's in charge. Now you notice how I'm not getting really big on what Abram's believing. I'm really trying to get you to see what Abram's believing. That's the point. Too often we get into character studies as if we just had more faith like Abram. But the point is, is that the only way to have more faith like Abram is to see the God in whom Abram has faith in. It's a God whose providence is caring. The other thing I want you to think about providence is providence always has concern for us at its heart. God doesn't need providence for himself. Do you understand that? God is holy and satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our world. He doesn't need this universe. He doesn't need any of us to make him happy and fulfilled. But that's very difficult for us to get a hold of because we need all kinds of things to make, our at least we think we need all kinds of things to make us Happy and fulfilled. But God is sufficient unto Himself. So providence is a mercy of His where He is orchestrating and caring for the world in such a way that the events and the things that are going on in our world all the way down to eating food, all the way up to Wall Street succeeding or crashing, to different leaders rising and falling, all of that is under His care under his thoughtfulness, under his sufficient upholding of it. And we have to begin to catch a vision of that is who God in the Bible declares himself to be. And that always brings us to a crisis of faith, doesn't it? Am I going to believe that? And do I have good reason to believe that? And what we're supposed to see in this text this morning is you have good reason to believe that because in the middle of this international crisis, there's this weird dude sitting up on a hill with 318 people with him who doesn't seem to be bothered by all the international intrigue and only acts when it seems appropriate and prudent to do so. How does he get that way? We're trying to wrestle with that. We're trying to think about what's happening here. Because many of us, as we walk into this room today, are struggling. We're wrestling with real issues, financial crunches. We're wrestling with where we're going. I spent about an hour and a half or so the other day talking with with Phil Henry, and we we just had a great conversation about both of us just discussing what God's been teaching him, how God has been growing he and his family, and, and the real... In some ways, leap that they're, they're making to go all the way across the country to plant a church in Gloucester County, New Jersey. Most of you don't even have that on your radar screen, much less on a map that you know of. And the point I want us to see is, is that these are the kind of things that we begin to we're, we've got these things on our minds. We've got things we're struggling through and wrestling through and the thing we need to start is to get a vision of a God who is not somehow immune from our caring concerns. In fact, what we're seeing in this text is He inserts Himself right into our cares and concerns, right into the mix of what's going on. Ketel Lomar's win only lasted for a moment. But that moment was overwhelming, don't you think, for Lot and for his family and for all those people that were defeated? But God knew that Abram was waiting in the wings. And we get the insight of that, and sometimes I think we forget that too, is that when we're reading the Bible, we're getting insight into what's happening the people didn't have. Job had no idea what we know when you start reading the book of Job. Remember, we get to see what happened in heaven before calamity struck job that's inside information he didn't have and so really we ought to take this and say oh I've got inside information what am I doing with it how am I living in light of it how is that having an impact in how I am operating with other people we're gonna look at that more but I do want you to begin to think that as we grow in our understanding of God's providence we become free to stop worrying about events and rather look to see how we can be involved in what God is doing God is at work even when we don't see the results he's always at work and what I want you to see is that God is interested in us being set free not being bound up in worry and what's going to happen and what am I going to do and how am I going to be able to do it it is rather catching a vision of how great He is, what He has done for us, and what He's doing as a result of that around us, and what He might be desirous to do through us if we would stop worrying and start trusting Him. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. If you're a Christian, God is doing things through you. Most of the time, you can't see it because of your unbelief. But He sees it because He's not thwarted even by you. He continues to carry out His providence and doing people good, especially His own chosen people. He loves us. He desires our best. He is at work all the time, whether we can see it or not. that's the first thing i want us to see from this passage the second thing then is the lord's possession look at what happens in this passage here we see that melchizedek comes out this king of salem his name melchizedek is is a form of the word righteousness and the king of salem the idea of salem we if you start to undo that word salem shalom peace well-being He's a king and a priest. He brings out bread and wine. Let that kind of percolate in your minds for a little bit. We're going to come back to that. But I want you to see that he comes out. And look at what he says to Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. El Elyon. God Most High. The possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what I want us to begin to see here that I think this passage is showing as well is that everything that we're discussing in this passage is the Lord's. That's how we know his providence is at work here because who's under his hands? Kedalomar and the Mashers and Smashers? The rebellious kings are in his hand. All their possessions are in his hands? The earth is in his hands? You know the the old song that we love to hear little children sing? It's really cute, but we don't really believe it. He's got the whole world in his hands? He's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. We don't believe that as far as we can sing it. Not really. See, what would happen if we really start to catch a vision of God being the creator and possessor of all things? Well, I can tell you one of the things it'd start to do is what we see with Abram. We'd start to hold on a little looser to the stuff we've been given because we'd start to realize this isn't my stuff. It's God's stuff that He's given me to take care of, to dispense, to use for His purposes and His glory. See, if we want people to tithe like Abram did, you have to be a person who doesn't think this is your stuff. This building isn't Desert Springs building. It is our building to take care of. And sometimes we've done a good job of that and sometimes we haven't. This property is not our property. It's God's property. Not just because it's a church, because that same thing's applied to my house. My house is not, I know what the laws of this land say, that's my home. But did you know that for most of us, at least where I live and in most of these new neighborhoods, I can't speak for the whole city of Tucson because I haven't done enough research on it, but I at least know for my neighborhoods that we don't own the land our house is built on. We own our home, we own the surface of that land. I'm trying to figure that one out. But anything underneath it that's of value, the state of Arizona retains rights to. Which means if a gold, I mean, if oil starts seeping up underneath my driveway, I won't be like Jed and I won't be moving to Hollywood. <laughs> if up from the ground comes some bubbling crude, uh, it's Arizona's. And I want us to think about the reality that in many ways, if we would start to have that kind of attitude which says none of it's mine. It's not even the state of Arizona's. Except that God wills that it be so for this period of time at this point in history. If we'd start to see that he owns it, we start to become able to be generous because it's not our stuff, it's God's stuff. Have you ever heard that joke, you know, where it says, you know, your children are always generous with your money? You know how you know how your, your your kids will invite people over. You know you've got a pretty clear budget. I mean I don't know how it is at your house, but at our house we've got a pretty clear budget. My wife buys food. For for the period of time, she's got the meals laid out, the snacks laid out, and the kids just are they're they're just budget busters, right? Because they say, hey, I just invited Johnny to come on over," or "Hey, Mom, the swim team wanted to come over," or, or "We're going to go." You know, you just think about how this stuff works, and all of a sudden, the the lemonade that had been nicely portioned out over the whole rest of the of that particular week is now blown because it all instead of being portioned out over the whole week, it all goes up in one day. And of course, the the Krispy Kreme snacks and whatever else you had around the house that had been allotted out that all that's gone because you just went right there and now you got to step back and see here's the point why are we so concerned about this stuff I mean I'm not suggesting we can't be thoughtful about our budgets that that's not the point what I'm trying to say is how often do we start to get concerned as if God didn't know that we were going to be in that place i.e. his providence And that he's not the possessor of all things, so he knows how to give it and take care of it. I mean, we make comments like this all the time. Well, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you conclude what? That he's the owner of the cows on a thousand hills. But what is that really doing for me? And see, the point of that information is to actually increase your faith is to increase your understanding that if he has all that, what kind of father would he be if he didn't care for you? If he didn't know your needs and care for you. Now, that leads us into the third point that I want to make. And that is the Lord's provision. And I want you to notice that what happens here is because... Abram is getting and understanding God's in control of all these things, God's in possession of all these things. He's now free to make some wise decisions and choices. One, he gives Melchizedek a tenth of what he's got around him. He just basically says, here's a tenth. Why? Because he recognizes Melchizedek for who he is. He is a priest and a king to the Most High God. So he gives this portion to the Lord through Melchizedek the Lord's servant, Melchizedek. Now, I want you to think about this. What did Melchizedek do in this story except for show up and bring some measly bread and wine? I mean, that's like the basics of hospitality, right? Here's some bread, here's some wine. You're probably thirsty, probably a little tired. Let me help you give you a little ration along the way. That's what he provides. And so Abram gives him a tenth of the spoils. A tenth. Now, that doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it's not insignificant either. He gives it to him. Generously gives it to him. He's not clutching to it. And then when the king of Sodom shows up and says, you keep all that stuff and just give me the people, Abram again says, because he understands who the king of Sodom is, I made a covenant with the Lord. I wouldn't take a thread, a lace for a sandal from you, lest you should say. Now we've got to understand what's happening here. Abram understands how the king of Sodom works. We're not reading any of the text. Think about why does he tell him, I made a covenant. I mean, he intentionally did this before we ever got into this circumstance. I made a covenant that I would not take anything from you, lest you should say, which is telling us something about the character of the king of Sodom, you made Abram rich. Now I want you to think about this how this begins to play out in our lives. Someone comes along and says, I want to give you all this money. Should you take it? That all depends on where you're standing and how you understand God's caring for you. See, Abram is free to make these kind of decisions because he's not concerned about being cared for. Now, you could say, well, Abram got rich in Egypt, or Abram had this, but you'd be missing the point. For many of us in here, we've never had millions of dollars, but I have had the privilege of being around people who have had that kind of money, and I can assure you that having that kind of money does not necessarily set a person free. It often weighs them down. They have the concerns with all kinds of stuff and the caring for all the things that that kind of money brings into play. They have to become wise with how they care for that money, how they, if they're Christians, how they dole that money in and out. They have to think a lot about money, which if you don't have a lot of it, you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's pretty much where it's going. The rent or the loan for the house, uh, the food, gas, oil change to keep that machine running back and forth and when repairs need to be made. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. What I want you to begin to understand is this isn't about who has more and who has less. It's an attitude of what am I going to do whether I have a lot or have a little. How am I processing the world? Of whom should I take things from and how should I process what's happening? We always talk about getting things and there being strings attached. See, we need to be aware of that. And we see Abram is aware of that. There are strings attached to this money. And so he gives it all back. Part of it is the very character of the king of Sodom these other men to rebel. To to basically have that attitude of throwing off the yoke, so to speak. Um, He distances himself from that attitude and that idea. What I want us then to think about as we look at the provision of God is this. We tend to be people who think that we know what we need. We know what's necessary for life. We know what would be, we'd be better off. If I got a raise, we'd be better. If I could bring in more money, we'd be better. If I had these kind of relationships, we'd be better. If this was happening, we'd be better. Now, sometimes that may be wise, and you may be right, and you're making wise decisions, and some of those things certainly could be better. But the point is is that have you ever thought that sometimes when you're lacking things, God is trying to teach you a new appreciation for those things, not in your need of them, but rather in how you're going to respond if those things were placed in your life. Whether it be money, whether it be relationships, whether it be things, whatever it is. See, the Lord knows how to provide for us, and oftentimes we despise the normal and the ordinary things He brings. And that's where I want to come back to what Melchizedek does. See, what Melchizedek does in bringing out bread and wine as this priest king, what is it with bread and wine? It's ordinary stuff. There's nothing all that special about it. And yet the significance of it to Abram caused him to see, and the words that came out of Melchizedek's mouth caused Abram to give generously to Melchizedek and to the Lord through Melchizedek. Because he didn't despise those small things he saw them for the great things they really were see in a real sense what we have to begin to become is people who when we walk into this building and we hear a guy like me say things like i'm saying right now see without the eyes of faith it's just a dude talking i mean dennis he's a nice dude he he sometimes says something that's interesting and maybe he's a little nugget you can write down and every once in a while he even quotes somebody that you could if took that quote you could put it on your refrigerator and people go wow it's a pretty good quote But see, the eyes of faith should say, no, what's happening is when we show up at this place is that ordinary guy is actually giving to us, is dispensing the blessings of heaven. And in a few minutes when he steps down from right here and breaks this bread and pours out this wine and we start to take of those simple elements, something profoundly incredible is taking place. See what we have to become is people who really believe that God knows how to provide for his people, and that often the way he provides is in very ordinary, very humble, very unspectacular ways. And that's often the very thing we don't think we need. What we need is to do is tend to do something dramatic. And oftentimes, God's just doing things very normal and very ordinary. But how often do we miss it when that person says, it's good to see you today, and we think, yeah, that was nice. Or when we come to church and we're able to participate in the things we're participating, we go, yeah, that was good. But see, do we really realize that The God of heaven has said these simple things are the most substantial things for your well-being. Are we willing to trust Him in that? Do we really believe that showing up at a church on Sunday morning to hear the Word preached and to participate in the sacraments and to sing some songs which we've sung before and to do all the things we've done, that God really is meeting here with us and providing for us exactly what we need. Maybe not what we want, but what we need. You see, if we begin to become people like that, we begin again to be set free because we're not always clamoring after what we think we need. We start to trust God that He knows exactly what we need and He's giving it to us exactly when we need it. And we stop being people who are always clamoring for what we don't have and what might be if God would just do something. We start to realize He has been doing something. He continues to do things. And that leads me to my conclusion then, which is this, which you might be willing to say something like this. Great, that helped Abram. How does that help us? Because, see, we can't get away from, but how does that help me? Well, here's the things I want us to see. If you begin to see this, you then begin to get eyes. When you go to the New Testament, your eyes all of a sudden start to get really big because you go, okay, I'm getting providence. So when I get to Galatians 4, here's what I see. At the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To set me free from the things which bind me up and keep me from being the person I was called to be. Sin. And my guilt. And my shame. And my self-righteousness. And my rebellion. See, we begin to have eyes that go, aha, this providential God has been doing all of this. Not just for Abram, but we really start to believe what First Peter says, that all of that was done, not for them, but for us. They were only looking at it from the Back end, we get to see it from this side, the front side. We get to see the beauty and the richness of Christ having come. Not the hope and the expectation, but the reality is all around us. We also might be people who start to realize that when we look at this possessor of all things, we start to realize the great humility It must have taken for Him like Philippians chapter 2 tells us to not clutch after that but to leave it all there and to come and be willing to put it all at risk to provide for us in our sin and in our carelessness and in our clutching after stuff. He came to set us free. We might be people who begin to see that it will take a priestly king who's willing to take a simple meal like bread and wine and set it before his people so that they can remember that a death, a death of an ordinary Jewish guy some 2,000 years ago was the most profound event in human history even though it seemed like just another ordinary day in Israel where the mashers and smashers of Rome had taken another insurrectionist Jew, slammed him up on a cross, and shoved him off in a tomb somewhere. We might be people who start to say, no, the most profound thing in all of human history took place in an obscure place in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. And if we began to do that, then we start to realize that God has provided everything we need. His providence has brought it to pass. The possessor of all things was willing to leave His kingly throne to come and join us among our need and to put Himself at risk to suffer and to hurt and to groan the same way we did so that we might be set free to be the possessors of all things. If we begin to see that, if we begin to realize the treasure that we have from God in Christ, we are people that start to be able to look out at this world in a very different way because we have found that our heart's greatest need is found in God. And I pray that whether you believe that and you're here and you've needed to hear that again, I pray that it presses deeply into you and if you don't know Christ, if you don't know this, if this has sparked some interest, I would ask that you would come and talk to me or somebody else that you know in this room as a believer and that you would begin to talk to them and be willing to hear more about how Christ can be your everything. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.